Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. But let every man prove his own work, and then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For every man shall bear his own burden. Father God, we just praise your holy name and thank you for your love, grace, and mercy, and thank you for your Son and for your word that we might know him. And we just ask that the Holy Spirit would open our eyes and hearts of understanding tonight as we look into the truths that you have for us. In the wonderful name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, amen. Brethren, if man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself. And that's the important part, considering thyself along with this. And it's interesting in the, in the passage that uh, Brother Baker covered in the, the, the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. And we come down to that, you know, at the end of that, verse 25 of chapter 5, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desires. Verse 26 leads into my passage, I believe. Uh, let us not be, I mean, it ends the other one. It, it's, it's, you know, it's, it belongs to both passages. Let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another. You know what can happen sometimes when, when we become spiritually mature and we realize, you know what, I've got some of this, I'm understanding this, I'm walking in the Spirit. And you know what, one of the greatest ways is that we can quench the Spirit is when we become proud of how spiritual we are. Can that happen? You bet it can happen, can it? And I think that's what Paul's warning here. He's talking about living in the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, and the fruit of the Spirit being exhibited in one's life. And the next thing you know, in a spiritual victory, I believe in the, the aftermath of a spiritual victory is the most dangerous place that a Christian can be. Because there is a temptation. There's a, there's a, uh, well, there's a temptation to do it, and there's a built-in, something just built in to us as human beings. It's called the flesh. <laughs> The old nature, it can also be called Adam, can it? It's built in there. We like it, you know, get patted on the back. We like it when somebody says, you did a great job. And, and pretty soon, you know, we get to believe in how great we are and how good we are. And, you know, if you're wearing a hat, you've got to adjust the hat band, you know, and your head starts swelling up. And uh, That's why I quit wearing a vest. You know, I kept popping the buttons off. No, uh, no I mean, we have that tendency, don't we? We like somebody to brag on us. Pretty soon we say, yeah, we are. I'm pretty good. Let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another, because what this promotes then, okay, I got bragged on today, but somebody else gets bragged on tomorrow. Then what happens? Well, I'm just as good as he is. You know, <laughs> why did somebody dislike me now? And it's one thing as we talk about it, but it's another, you know, as, as we stop and really start thinking about it when things come into life. Because things can sneak up on us and we don't really realize what's happening, do we, sometimes. And that pride is one of those things. Matter of fact, I believe that we could define sin as selfishness. I really do. It's self-seeking. Is that looking after what's for you rather than looking out for others. God demonstrated his love for us and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
You know, you stop and think about that. God is a God of action. That's Romans 5.8. God commendeth his love. That's how the King James said it means to demonstrate. He demonstrated his love. His love was demonstrated in action, in what he did. He sent his son to die for us. Oh, we're yes, sinners. Matter of fact, read the whole passage. You find out we were enemies of God. We were ungodly sinners. And we were in opposition to God. And he sent his son to die for us. And you know, human tendency is, you know what? If you get your act straightened up, then we'll see what we can do for you. Isn't that kind of how we do it? It's not what God did. And aren't you glad that's not the way God operates? That he sent his son while we were still sinners. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness. We uh, Restore such a one. One that's taken in a fault. You know, and it's easy when to look at others and look down and say, oh, you know, that guy, look what's wrong here. And it's a tendency to give them the boot, you know, or the left foot of fellowship. But what he's saying here, when somebody's taking in a fall, and it's, it's not talking about habitual sin, what he's talking about here is you have a brother or a sister in Christ and they've taken a false step. They're, they're overtaken in a, in a trespass. They're, um, they failed. They failed. Last week, it's actually last Saturday morning, I got a phone call early in the morning with news that a man that's been saved about two and a half years, he's coming to our church in the last six months, he's kind of drifted off. He's in jail, facing some serious charges. You know, and there's a tendency to want to say, well, you got yourself into this now, didn't you? It's true. And the consequences, according to the law, he's not going to get around those. He's going to have to pay. But the idea here is to restore the fellowship and to bring that brother back to where he belongs in his Christian life. Restore such a one the spirit of meekness. Considering thyself, least thou also be tempted. This is an important statement that he makes here. Considering thyself, let they also be tempted. There is no evil. There is no heinous crime that somebody else might commit that we can look at and say, ah, that if we look deep enough our heart, we won't find out that we're capable also. It's true. And it's when we think, anything that we think that we could never fall into, Satan's just waiting for you to say that. And then he starts looking. Well, that's the snare I'll put out for you because you're not going to be looking out for that one, are you? That's the one you think, I've got it. Oh, you know, and that's one of the things when we get our... our, our uh, What happens when you really think you start really are something, you know? And you, oh boy, you know, that's right. I'm, and you know what? You're going to trip and fall right on your sanctified nose is what's going to happen. And there's none of us that are immune to that. And, and the Bible is, is very plain about that. 
Let's go to Romans um, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you seemeth to be wise in this world, let him become a fool that he might be wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God, for it is written, He taketh the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knoweth the thoughts of the wise, that they are vain. Therefore, let no man glory in men, for all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the things present or the things to come, all are yours. And ye are Christ, and Christ is God's. He's establishing our ownership at the end, isn't he? But the part is, he says, if you think you're so wise, watch out. Because you're going to fall. And you know, I think that's one of the ways that God chastens the body of Christ. I believe that God chastens. And one of the ways he does that, he just pulls back and says, if you want to do it your way, go ahead. Have you ever wanted something really bad or wanted to do something really bad and, and you just thought about that and, and you know, and, and finally you went ahead and did it without... Not, not putting brain really in gear. Just something you wanted to do. It didn't work out too good. Every one of us has some kind of a memory like that, don't we? That's the idea. When you rush ahead in your own, in your own. and that's what's going to happen. And you know, we also grow from those things too, don't we? Let's look at First uh, Corinthians chapter ten. First Corinthians chapter ten. Chapter 10, Paul uses Israel as a warning and what happened to them. What happened to Israel? And they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And, you know, at that time the Egyptians were baptized in the, in the Red Sea. They followed them after and they were drowned. But it says Moses, they were baptized into Moses, talking about Israel. And then he talks about the rebellion. He says this is a, given to us as an example that we can learn from. I'm not going to take time to read it all. But uh, verse 11 says that all these things happen to us as examples that they were written for admonition of whom the ends of the world are come. In other words, a warning and ex- you know, something for us to learn from. What happened to Israel when they disobeyed? Well, it says they were all baptized in Moses and came out. And now, verse 5 says, but with many of them God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, we stop and think about that. How many of the Israelites that followed Moses out of Egypt were overthrown in the wilderness? Only two men made it into the promised land. I used to look at this and think, well, you know, this represents the, the people that were saved. No, Paul's using this as an example, another example of the idea of the Bema seat and rewards. Do you know Moses was included in those people? Moses and Aaron and Miriam were included in those who were particularly not allowed to cross into the promised land? It's true. Miriam, because of her rebellion and that with Aaron, Aaron and Moses, particularly for hitting the rock. Remember that? God said, go speak to that rock. 
Before, he had told him to hit the rock, and he did, and the water came out. And this time there wasn't water, and they were murmuring and carrying on again. You know, Israel's kind of good at that. Kind of like, kind of like the body of Christ. You know, I, you know, Israel actually pictures humanity, don't they? You see how they act? But he took the, he struck the rock, and God said, because you didn't honor my name, Moses was not allowed to go into the promised land. He was allowed to go up on Mount Pisgah. He says, go up Mount Pisgah on the other side, on the east side of Jordan River. He says, look over and says, there's the land, but that's as close as you're going to get to it, Moses. And the Bible teaches that God put Moses to death prematurely, caused him to die, killed him, whatever you want to say it, and hid his body so man wouldn't worship it. But Moses was not allowed in. He was not allowed the privilege of leading Israel in because of his rebellion. That's what Paul's talking about here. He says, this is an example for us. He wasn't well pleased with them because of their walk. And then in verse uh, 13, uh, 11, 12, excuse me, 12, wherefore, this is the warning, wherefore let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. Let us as believers, if we think we're standing in our own, it goes right back to walking in the Spirit because that's what happens when we think we stand, when we think we're doing it. When we get to uh, taking the credit for it, for what God's done in our life. And we get to think we have the power to do it. When you think you're standing on your own, take heed, lest you fall. But with this is also a great promise here. And I know you'll see this verse quoted when people are facing trials and tribulations in their life and the idea that God will carry you through. That is true, but that's taught in other verses. That's not what this verse is teaching. This verse is teaching exactly what it says. There hath no temptation taken you, but is common to man. There's nothing you can be tempted to do outside of God's will that's not something that's a common temptation to the world. But God is faithful who will suffer you to be tempted, not suffer you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. This verse, if there was a verse, there's not, don't, don't go saying I said I want to cut a verse out of the Bible because I don't, but if there was a verse in the Bible I was going to take out, it'd be that one. You know what that verse says? If you're a believer, if you've trusted Christ as your Savior, you're a blood-bought saint today, you don't have any excuse for your sin. That's what he says. That's what he's saying. We can rationalize it, we can justify it, we can do whatever we want to, but he says, you don't have an excuse. You can't say, well, God, I'm just that way. You made me that way, so I can't help it. He says, yes, you can't help it. If your mind is renewed and you're transformed by the renewing of your mind instead of being conformed to this world, you're going to understand things better. And if, you, if you're not, if, you, if you're simply, as a believer, if you're simply ignoring the Bible and ignoring the truths that are here and you're not paying attention to them, your mind's not going to be renewed. And what's going to happen? You're going to start responding according to human wisdom, and you're going to get in trouble. It's that simple. Now, we look at the idea of 
immorality and open things like that is a sin. But there's a lot more that the Bible deals with than that. And one of those things is our heart attitude, isn't it? I don't know about you. Maybe you don't have a problem with it. But I do. Now, I would tell you, I've got all these things under control. My wife's sitting right back here. And she'd probably put her hand up and say, wait a minute. You remember the other day? I'm not sure if that's why the Lord gave us wives, but... um, (laughs) It's true. Do you know a person can be as drunk on religion as they can alcohol? And carried away with it? And become oppressive and arrogant because of how much they know? Oh, we know the Bible. We know this. We know that. We, we, we do this. And, you know, and then, then because we don't do this and we do this, we're, we're, we live as Christians. A Christian is one who has trusted Christ as our Savior. And we have to understand that. Go back to Galatians chapter 6. Consider yourself, restore, if a man be overtaken in a fault, or any trespass, literally what it says, ye which are spiritual, you're spiritually minded, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest I also be tempted. And we have to understand that. That we can be tempted too. That's why you have compassion and love for our brothers and sisters when they fall. Now, doctrinally, there can come a time when we have to break fellowship with other believers. As a matter of fact, uh, Paul deals with that also. Let's uh, quickly look at 2 Timothy chapter 2. Verse 23, 2 Timothy 2.23, But foolish and unlearned questions avoid, knowing that they do gender strifes. And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves or in opposition. If God preadventure will give them repentance to the acknowledgement of the truth, and they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil, and who are taken captive by him at his will. Here's one place where the, the King James translators in their language, it's kind of, the word, the word structure is not exactly the way we would do it today. Basically he's saying, those that are opposing you, be gentle with them, that they help and continue trying to show them the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil they've been taking in. And he's talking about false doctrine here. I believe that's what he's talking about. You know, we're not, we're not even to write them off just the first time. But then Titus, we have a little more instruction in the book of Titus, Titus chapter 3. Verse 9. But avoid foolish questions and genealogies and contentions and striving about the law for the unprofitable and vain. A man that is a heretic, after the first and second admonition, reject, knowing that he is such a subverted and sinneth, being condemned of himself. He's bringing his on himself. And the word heretic 
is the idea of divisive. I think we get our word sectarian from it, where the idea of a sect, an S-E-C-T, um, a different group, or they're divided by their doctrine, where they get it. But he's talking about a doctrine, false doctrine. And they, it's a broad range, and some doctrines that we can, we, can, we can fellowship with, and we can disagree with, and we can, we can deal with, but there are some doctrines that we cannot compromise. And I think that's what Paul's talking about here. The blood of Christ. The infallibility of the scripture. The virgin birth. The deity of Christ. Those things aren't up for debate. Those stand. Any of those, what they call the fundamentals, any of those fall, everything falls. We don't have anything. And the scriptures clearly teach. These battles have been fought for these truths, haven't they? Salvation by the blood of Christ through faith alone. The fact that Christ is going to return someday. Those are all fundamental doctrines that we can't. But there are other doctrines that we, we can deal with. And there's differences of opinion on certain things, you know, and they're not the kind of things to, to fight over. But some doctrines we have to stand for. They're more important than relationships or family or anything else. Those fundamental doctrines are what Christ died for. He died for our sins, but those truths give us the foundation for it. And when you take those kind of truths away, everything collapses. We really don't have anything. We need to be willing to stand for the truth. And we're living in dangerous days today, and it's becoming more important all the time to be willing to stand for the truth. Back to Galatians chapter 5. Now, I've shown two parts of that. You know, we don't want to be in a hurry to just, to just reject the, the idea is to restore such a one. In meekness, considering thyself, at least I'll also be tempted. Sometime a fallen brother or sister, what they need more than anything else is just... Someone to come along and let them know they care and they've not been abandoned. It's true. You make a lot of headway that way. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Bear one another's burdens. And the idea of a burden here is the Greek word baros, if I'm pronouncing that right. It means a weight or something that's hard to bear up under. It's, it's an overpowering weight or something that you just, you know... Um, Pilgrim's Progress, if you're familiar with that book, that he was carrying this weight around all the time. It was weighing him down, and he was trying to get rid of it. He actually called it a burden, didn't he, I think, uh, in Pilgrim's Progress, and he finally got rid of it at the foot of the cross. And that was the analogy that uh, Paul, uh, John Bunyan, who wrote that while he was in prison, I believe, <laughs> for preaching the gospel. But that's the idea of something that's just loading you down. Bear one another's burden. Come alongside, lift up, edify our brothers and sisters in Christ. And there's a lot of different ways we can do that. And many times, just let somebody know you care. Somebody's thinking about them. Somebody's praying about them. And sometimes to come along and, and to help them and to, to help them sort things out when they're confused spiritually. Because that happens, doesn't it? Don't people get their life get in a mess and they get confused spiritually? And sometimes it takes some work to get them back in on course. And it doesn't happen overnight sometimes. Restore such a one. 
Bear one another's burdens will fulfill the law of Christ. Let's look at Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13. Where Paul talks about the law, I think it's interesting. Romans 13, verse 8. Owe no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. Paul says, you know, we're not under the law, but we're going to go ahead and fulfill it. Owe no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth one another hath fulfilled the law. For this... Thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet, and if there is any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Now, that's right out of Leviticus. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You see, the point of the law was never to make people righteous or holy or prove how good they were. The point of the law was to point out that we failed, didn't he? And man was supposed to love God with all his heart and all his mind and all his soul and all his power and to love his neighbor as himself. Part of the law. They didn't. They failed over and over and over and over again. But what's Paul? How's he applying this? What's he saying here? And in verse 10 he tells us, Love worketh no ill of his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And we stop and think about the law. There's a lot of prohibitions in it. You weren't supposed to steal. You weren't supposed to take advantage of your neighbor. You know? And you weren't supposed to cover what your neighbor had. Actually, even our laws and our society are meant to protect each other, aren't they? Well, that's the way it started out. I'm not sure exactly how it works today. We have so many laws. That, uh, but that's really the idea of protecting each other. That's why in the Mosaic Law, it covered not only the moral standard, it covered the civil ordinances and the religious ordinance. All that was tied in together. Part of the law was if you got caught stealing, you had to re repay fourfold. Four times what he stole. He had to pay it back. That's part of the law. It told him when they'd take somebody out and stone them and, and what they would, you know, the different things they would do. But Paul's saying, if you're not harming your neighbor, if you're doing good for your neighbor, you're loving your neighbor, so you fulfill the law. The spirit of the law is what he's got in mind. Not the, not the written law in the sense, but the spirit of the law, the, the, the essence behind it, what God's purpose was in relationships with people with one another and his relationship with him. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. And, you know, that's the, the, the idea here. Let's go back to Galatians. Do you understand what Paul's saying here? Don't worry about whether it's against the law or not to steal. You know it's wrong and you don't do it. That's the motivation for, for a believer is that we know what's glorifying to God and that's what we do and that's how we uh, gear our life what's edifying to others and what glorifies God. And then he comes verse, uh, verse 3. For if a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. We already looked at some of these verses on that. If a man thinketh himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. 
mankind, Adam's fallen race, is a wreck. Hopeless. Helpless. Wreck. They like to brag on themselves. They like to show all the things that they can do. I mean, mankind as a whole. But they're really a hopeless and helpless mess. We don't have any, we don't bring anything to the cross. We have nothing to offer God. None of us do. None of us were saved on any, not one iota of merit. We didn't deserve anything but the lake of fire. And yet he saved us. And whatever we have, anything that we are of any value is because of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the only value we have. But he loves us. He loves us with such a tremendous love that he gave his own son to die for us. He told Israel, not because you're such a great people, not because you're such a good people, not because you're a holy people or a righteous people that, I, that I've chosen you as my own. It's because I love the fathers. And he said he loved Israel. And they didn't deserve anything either. When we think we're something, but we're nothing. And who is he describing? He's describing all of us. But let every man prove his own work or test his own work, examine his own work. Now, where does he come here now? He says, fulfill each other's, or uh, verse 2, bury ye one another's burdens, so fulfill the law of Christ. Come alongside, help that alien brother, give an encouraging word. Whatever, whatever it is, when we have the opportunity to help and to, to lift people up and to edify the members of the body of Christ and the brothers and sisters, then we take that opportunity. But he says, when it comes down to what, what, what's important for us is each one of us, he says, examine your own work and don't be looking at everybody else's. You know, it's, it's easy to find fault with what other people are doing. You look around and say, well, why aren't they doing this? And, you know, I'm guilty of this just like everybody else is. And we can find, we can, we can criticize pretty quickly, can't we? And why don't they do this? And, and why don't they do it this way? And, you know, I never have done that. And then we get mad. Well, he slighted me. You know, who cares? What Paul's saying here is you're only going to stand accountable for yourself when you stand before God. This is this is this verses, this passage deals with the judgment seat of Christ. Anybody quote Romans 12, 14, 12? Everyone will give account of himself for God. You know what? In the judgment seat of Christ, I'm not going to give an account for any of the students that have gone through the Berean Bible Institute. I'm not. None of the people that have sat under my teaching and preaching in my churches, none of those am I ever going to, the churches I pastor, not my church, but churches that I pastor. I'm not going to give an account of any one of those people. When I stand before the judgment seat of Christ, I'm going to give an account for Ed Bedore, and that's it. That's enough trouble as it is. And every one of us is in the same boat. And that's what he's saying here. Examine our own work. Prove his own work. The idea of, of proving our work. What is that? Examine it. See what it is. Test it. See if it'll stand. 
It's more important to do that than see if somebody else is going to stand. And the idea of proving, uh, of testing, you understand that concept? You know what a, a proof mark is on a gun barrel? They make gun barrels, and there's some rigid standards that go along with making gun barrels. Because you put things in barrels, gun barrels, they go boom, they go bang. And that's what they're built for, right? To put explosives inside and controlled, controlled explosives, what you're doing. Actually, ignition is, is, they don't really explode. The powder just burns really fast. Is the way, the way. Uh, and there's different, I used to reload, there's different powders that burn different speeds. And you put, you know, anyway, a lot of things go in that. But they proof marked it. You look at any gun, and it'll be proof marked. The barrel has some proof marks. And they call it a proof mark because they've already proved that that barrel will not blow up. Before it leaves the factory, they put it in a special stand, mount it, and they put an overloaded ca uh, ca uh, a, ca a bullet in there with an overload of powder, and they shoot it. And, <laughs> and it didn't blow up. They tested it, didn't they? They examined it. They proved it. When they first came out with the 747s, there weren't any hangers, or hardly any hangers, big enough to put them in. And at that time, I was living in the Kansas City area, and uh, I was working as an iron worker, and they built some hangers at the TWA overhaul plant there to overhaul 747s. Huge buildings. And they built them in kind of a strange, I don't know, new concept at the time. They were kind of a dome-looking thing, but they were poured what they called post-cast or post-stressed concrete. I don't know if you're familiar with that. There's pre-stress where they put cables in concrete to make bridges and things, and they tighten the, the cables up after. And the cable, the pressure on the cable actually holds the concrete together. I mean, you got this cable running through it. Well, these things are a big dome, and they put these cables in, and they tighten them afterwards, and that pressure holds it, all this dome together. They're still there. They haven't fallen down. And they have a lot of reinforcing steel in them also and so forth. But in building these, when they pulled the forms off the bottom, these were huge. They had all this scaffolding and stuff. They built these big forms. And when they pulled the forms off the bottom, some of that concrete had what they call honeycomb in it. They... They call it that because it looked, kind of looked like a honeycomb. Honeycomb has holes in it, right? Concrete with holes in it isn't very strong. And it's an interesting thing because steel and concrete actually expand and contract at exactly the same rate. Otherwise, uh, steel reinforced concrete construction wouldn't work. They have to, because it gets hot. You know, they put expansion bridges and bridges, expansion joints and bridges, and from a cold 20 below day to a uh, 110 degree day, they can, a bridge can expand as much as three inches. And if you have it tight, there's got to be an expansion joint in there for where to go or to break. But anyway, there's honeycomb in these buildings. It wasn't poured right. They didn't, they didn't do a good job. They didn't have their, they have a vibrator. They're supposed to get all down all the holes in the bottom part where they couldn't, they didn't do it. And TW said, we're not buying that. Tear it down. Start over. Well, when you got several million dollars, this was in the 1970s, you know, and several hundred million dollars tied up in something like that, you don't want to tear You don't want to today, but it'd probably be close to a billion dollars today. But anyway, I said, tear it down. We're not going to buy it. I said, no. 
They got their engineers, and their engineers calculated. They said, no, it'll stand. And so they took huge weights and hung huge cables from the, from the top and took huge weights on the bottom. They put them on jacks and they let the jacks out from under them and hung these weights on these, from the top of these buildings for days. And they measured them. The engineers would measure to see how much deflection there was. And the building stood. They had patched the concrete and everything, but they said, no, that, that wasn't going to work. And the building stood, and TWA bottom of the building was still there. They tested it. And that's the concept what Paul said, prove, prove your own work, test it, see what sort it is. And where do we, how do we test our work our, our service for, Lord, for the Lord, what we do, our attitude. It's more than just, you know, ministry is everything we do. If you're a believer, everything you do is ministry. Do you know that? Your life is a ministry. You belong to God. And you're serving Him. 24-7. He didn't take out a lease. Not hourly hire. You're sealed by the Holy Spirit to the day of redemption. You are Christ and Christ is God. That's simple. Let every man prove his own work. You say the word man, we understand that, is every believer. Male, female. And then shall he have rejoiced in himself alone and not in another. You know, when we come to the judgment seat of Christ, our glory and joy isn't going to be how many, how many rewards are heaped on us. That's not what it's about in the judgment seat of Christ and rewards. And there's going to be levels of rule. I believe that. I think that's going to be something to do with that. But the reward and the joy is going to be to see how God was able to use us to glorify His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what's important. Whether we'll allow him to use us or not. And you know, God may be using somebody in a great way and we look and say, what's it? They're not doing anything. And that's not true. You know, the widow's might. That's an interesting concept to me. And I remember one time there at school, we got a letter in the mail. Three crumpled $1 bills in it. I almost can't talk about it today without choking up. Three crumpled one dollar bills. And a lady said, I had this left over. She's nine and her ninety seven, ninety eight years old. She said, I had this left over from my check this month. And I hope you can use it. I believe she sent more than our biggest donor has ever given. probably living on a very, very small amount. Let a man prove his work, and then he shall rejoice in himself alone and not in another. For every man shall bear his own burden. We already looked at that in Romans chapter 12. Now, the word translated burden here is a different Greek word. The one in chapter uh, 2, bear one another's burden, is baros means a weight, something hard to bear. This one, 
as portion, a load or a cargo, etc. I mean, we have our own. Talks about we have our own job. Each one of us has our own assignment. And how we understand that, God's called each one of us to ministry. And wherever, and you know, where if a person wants to get into ministry, start ministering. Start ministering. And you'll find where you fit in. Start looking for a need that needs to be met and start and start doing that. There's somebody somewhere around that has a need, and you can meet it. A person's gifts make room for them, but they have to start somewhere. You don't start at the top. I've had people say, you know, we could minister too. We don't have a church, or we don't have this, we don't have that. Take the first step. Preparing for that. Each one of us will carry his own burden. In other words, we've got our own load. And you know, it's not a burden. It's what what is what what is it called? Romans he says the the uh, sufferings of this present age are not worthy to be revealed. I mean to be compared with the glory that should be revealed in us. In Second Corinthians, Paul calls it the light afflictions of this age, or the, the afflictions of the age the, the are not worthy of the, of the how, how does it say that? The um, eternal weight of glory? Is that the way it says it? If we will believe that this life in this world are not the ultimate and realize it's beyond this life, it makes life a lot easier. It also helps us put things into perspective. This life, man's life is like a vapor that's here for a little while and gone. Our opportunity to serve Christ is now. Basically what Paul's saying. And we do it, we minister to others, restore such a one, the one that's taken a fault, the one that's, that's had a that fault, the one that's faltered, the one that's fallen. Help him up. Help him up. And be careful that you be tempted and you fall in the same way. Because we can. Bear you one another's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ. But if a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. And, and you, know, you know, we're good at self-deceiving ourselves. <laughs> Self-deception. Mankind, we don't use this. Mankind has the capacity to think up his lie, tell his lie to himself, and talk himself into believing it. He does. It's true. We call it rationalization. Logic. <laughs> Matter of fact, that's exactly what Paul says like what man, in Romans chapter 1 where he says man's trouble, he, he chose to believe a lie. And we don't lose, the trouble is we don't lose that capacity when we become saved, do we? We can still reason ourselves into any place we want to be. And that's because we get to thinking that we're something when we're nothing. And we talk ourselves into believing it. And we're de- it's self-deception. Let every man prove his own work. 
and you have rejoicing in Him alone, in self alone, and not in another. Of course, our rejoicing is in Christ, isn't it? For every man shall bear his own burden. Father, as we look at these things, we realize that the works of the flesh are always at the threshold if we take our eyes off of you and the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to keep focused. That we take it to heart to just present our, our, our bodies a living sacrifice for reasonable service. And that we allow you to transform us by the renewing of our mind that we would not be conformed to this world and its system. Teach us to love our fallen brothers and sisters. To help them back up. To restore them. Give us wisdom and discernment, Lord. Help us understand what Paul is saying. Bear one another to fulfill the law that love does no harm to his neighbor. Understand that our position is in Christ and he is the worthy one alone. And all that we have comes from him. That we might look at our own hearts. That we might test our own life and might carry the burden you've called us to, to serve you day by day, trusting in the Spirit of God to empower us and to learn from your Word and to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.